Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. In our mid-month show, we talk with the very talented South African film composer, Daniel Gard. Then we have our monthly roundup of movie news. I have an At The Flicks news scoop. Graham returns with an exciting Gerard Butler update. And Jeff talks about another TV spin-off. So jealous of Graham. <laughs> After that, Lucy returns for a fun discussion about the movie year so far. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Hi, my name is Graham, and my main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. Hi, my name is Neil, and I simply love movies. Lads, you know, I've been thinking about something you've both said recently. That you need to tone down some of your comments about Australia. No, 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 our, our listeners love them, especially our Australian ones. <laughs> Actually, it was something film-related for once. Now, last month... Both of you, along with Darren, all give very good of accounts of a film called Hustlers. Now, initially, and I'll be honest here, I thought it was just your voyeuristic <laughs> porny side. Well, to be honest, the first 20 minutes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the word is, not only from you guys, but from everybody I meet, said this is a really good film. It's a big surprise. We told you it was good. If you don't listen, it's your fault if you miss it. He never listens. Graham, haven't you realised that yet? <laughs> OK, OK. For once, I will concede I might, I stress that word, might be wrong and have missed a good film. A step in the right direction. This is like Alcoholics Anonymous for narcissists. <laughs> but in this case, with more delusion. And Jeff... You have to watch Joker as well. In fact, both of these films could feature heavily in the upcoming awards season. If we're getting films of this quality now, it makes you wonder what else might be on the awards season horizon. Funny you should say that, Graham. I have a few suggestions. Nice one, Graham. Now we'll never get to the main <laughs> show. Sorry about the delay, Daniel. Thanks, Neil. The person who is usually first in line to see anything I recommend. Except horror, of course, if you call them thillers or comedies or dramas. Right. Or documentaries. Okay. Documentaries. Right. Documentaries. That was a new one. Hold on, lads. Try this one for size. The Irishman. The latest from Martin Scorsese, based on the life of brutal hitman Frank Sheeran, who claimed to have killed Jimmy Hoffa. Hang on. Isn't that a Netflix film? Yes, it is but it looks like it's going to get a limited cinema release to qualify for the Oscars. It was a bit like what they did with Roma last year. And if you look at the pedigree of this film, I mean, you've got Scorsese directing the cast, which includes De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, who's back out of retirement for this, Harvey Keitel, the wonderful Bobby Carnival, and Stephen Graham. I think this could scoop the top prizes at all the awards. Except, and I'll say it again, it's a Netflix film, and there is a certain amount of backlash against that company at the moment. Plus, Martin Scorsese won the Oscar for The Departed just over a decade ago, another mob film. Also, factor in, The Irishman has a running time of three and a half hours. It will get plaudits, but no prizes. OK, then. Try this other Jeff candidate for award success. Ford versus Ferrari. Hasn't the title now changed to Le Mans 66? It might have. It is, like The Irishman, another true story. And that's true as well. Yeah, Thank it's, you. It, yeah, well, I'm there to help you, Neil. <laughs> so, Le Mans 66. 
is the story of car designer Carol Shelby and driver Ken Miles, played by Matt Damon and Christian Bale, respectively, as they push the boundaries of car design to give the Ford company a car to challenge Ferrari in the Le Mans race of 1966. Nice one. That synopsis covered both movie titles. Sounds intriguing, but do you think car design is going to be big at the movie awards? Graham, think outside the box, mate. Matt Damon and Christian Bale. How about that for pedigree? James Mangold directing? That's the man who made Logan, one of yours, and Walk the Line. <laughs> and how many Oscars did they win? Wait, yeah. Moving okay. on. Okay, fair point. Although I think we should forget he also made The Wolverine. While we're on the subject of potential award winners, what about Ryan Johnson's latest Knives Out? The trailer for this high-class whodunit looks great, with a fantastic cast looking on top form. There's Daniel Craig seemingly enjoying himself for the first time in years, Tony Collette, Chris Evans, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon and Christopher Plummer. Johnson has something to prove after the backlash following The Last Jedi, and I think a crowd-pleasing Oscar winner will be it. I'm not sure, Graham. Granted, it looks great, but these sort of films win in technical categories only, with, of course, the rare exception of the Best Supporting Actress nod for Ingrid Bergman all those years ago in Murder on the Orient Express. Best ever version of that story. If you want a crowd-pleaser which will win an award, then look no further than Tom Hanks's latest A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood. Back again to a true story as the film charts the friendship between American entertainer Mr. Rogers, Tom Hanks and jaded journalist Lloyd Vogel. Early word is that this is a really charming film which plays against our rather cynical age. Do you know what, Neil, and I don't say this often, you might have a point here. (laughs) Now, while I'm not sure how Mr. Rogers, who's little known in the UK, will connect, Mm. I think you're right, actually. I think this film runs so counter to modern society and everything we see in the news at the moment and looks back nostalgically in a good way, which is also different for this place, I think it could be different enough to win. Anyway, with these films as just a sample, I do think it's going to be an interesting award season this year. Okay, enough chat. Time to get back to the show. Let's introduce our first guest. That wonderful and evocative music comes from the documentary feature Bruce Lee and the Outlaws, which was composed by our guest this month, Daniel Gad. Daniel is a very talented composer, originally from South Africa, and has worked in various musical capacities on a number of British films. Earlier this summer, we spoke to Daniel about his musical career and the excellent score he's created for the powerful documentary Bruce Lee and the Outlaws. Over to Jeff and Daniel. Hello, and welcome to a very special interview from a London pub from your At The Flicks team. Neil, mine's a beer. 
Today, we are joined all the way from South Africa by young, talented, and up-and-coming film music composer, Daniel Gad. Hello, Daniel, and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, you're more than welcome. <laughs> now, my wife is South African, she's from Cape Town. My first question, which is quite unusual for us here, is from her, and she said, what was your time at sax like? So, for me, what is sax? So, yeah, sax is um, the high school that I went to. It's like a junior school and a high school, so I was pretty much there from like 7 to 18. It was a good time there. They had a really good uh, music department. That's what I was going to ask about the Pretty music, much yeah. like from the beginning. I think I, I started doing piano there at grade 3. Okay. And I was just really lucky to always have great music teachers and all the way through the high school. And we, you know, we had like chances to do th- play with orchestras. They would organize people to come to the school and like which is really rare for a high school to get a chance to like play with an orchestra and stuff. Wow. So, so did, did you go on tour with the school at all? Did they do any, any um, concerts away? I didn't ever do any tour stuff, but we, they used to have quite a few bands. So there'd be like a concert band, and I used to do some like piano things with the just general like music department things. And there's a jazz band as well. Used to, the jazz band was really fun. Oh, excellent. Used to kind of... So yeah, it was good oh, school really for music. Another question before we go on to film music. So I just want to talk to you about your album, As If in a Dream I Drifted at Sea. Now, reading the notes on this, it was recorded at Cork Bay near Fishhook? Cork Bay, yeah, that's it. And what I find surprising about the album, which I really like, by the way, it's got a very wintry feel to it, which is unusual from a summer place. Yeah, I guess. But I mean... I think when I recorded it, it was winter at the time, and it, it, right. it can get kind of wintry in Cape Town as well, cold and rainy. And I, I yeah, remem- welcome to London, Daniel. <laughs> yeah, uh. yeah, not as much as here. But, <laughs> yeah, I remember like doing some of those recordings with the rain kind of coming down outside. That's kind of like a songwriter album of just guitar and yeah, and my own like songs. Just after I'd studied, I did like a year master's degree overseas. And then I came back to Cape Town for a year and I just had a bunch of songs and I wanted to record them and also wanted to kind of figure out or practice like the process of recording a bit and learn how to use Pro Tools and set some mics up and just record myself and then do the kind of mixing myself as well because I was still like learning those processes a bit yeah. just as I went. It was my own songs and I wasn't recording anyone else. So it was just a chance to experiment and like take as much time as I needed and I think I didn't have a job at the time because I'd just come back home I was staying at my dad's place which is in Cork Bay yeah so I just had a lot of time to kill and I was kind of just sitting like trying to record in different rooms and you know see what what I got what were your inspirations for it mostly it's very Bob Dylan influenced stuff like because I, I always did piano that's what I studied on and kind yeah. of learned to play but I think when I was around 19, I just, I picked up the guitar. I got really into Bob Dylan and I just, and just taught myself to play. And yeah. I kind of always like with guitar that I don't know it as well as the piano. And I don't often know exactly what notes I'm playing, but oh, you really I can like work me, it out. Yeah, that sounded so good. I would recommend to anybody to track it down. The album's called As If In A Dream I Drifted At Sea. Have a listen. It's really, really good. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So you had that. You've done your master's degree. Yeah. You're in Cape Town. You decided to come to the UK. Yeah. Was it the weather that brought you here? 
I studied first in Cape Town. I did composition, uh, classical composition and piano there. Got my bachelor's degree there. I found this master's degree course in composing for film. Yeah. And that was in Valencia in Spain at Berkeley College of Music. Okay. And they had, I think it was the second year that they had started this program because Berkeley in Boston is the kind of really well-known music school, but they only used to do undergraduate degrees. So this Spain course was, it was the second year that they'd done this like master's thing and it was just one year. Yeah, really lucky to get into that. My class was kind of like 30 other film composer or composers who were interested in doing film but they were kind of everyone was from a different country really people from Iceland and China and and everyone would like have the same little clips of film to score as well and but they have a completely different approach just because of their like their cultural background is different so you would be watching like everyone's take on like the same scene which was really really interesting and then after that every kind of went home but now it's nice because everyone's spread out and, you know, you always kind of have a friend somewhere that's doing so some in interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. Spain's interesting because there's a lot of film music concert that take place in Spain every year. Funny enough, I was just watching a Hans Zimmer concert on Sky Arts mm-hmm. and that was done over in Spain. Not his tour that he did last couple of years, but prior to that he was in the audience watching an orchestra do it. But definitely Spain is... Yeah. Real appreciation for film music. Yeah, it was great. It was such a nice place to to study. The campus was right by the the big opera house there, so we could kind of go in and see rehearsals sometimes. It's got a great like music culture around there. It was a kind of a long roundabout. No, no, no. To it's how I came I, to I, no, I got another. <laughs> did you get any guest composers come down? Any guest film composers when you were there? Uh, yeah, we did actually. Um, Alberto Iglesias came. Oh, yeah, and that was amazing. Like. Yeah. I, He's one of those composers for me that he has this way of just writing like standalone pieces of music that sound like they exist on their own. It's just these amazing pieces. And then somehow they happen to like just fit perfectly to the film as well. It's like a real trick, I think. And yeah, he, he just does that so well. He said something really interesting. He was kind of just giving us a bit of like a, a talk just about the process, how he approaches things and... He was saying there was one film he was scoring that he couldn't get it right. It was like people walking down a path through a forest or something like that. And he was trying to like follow the characters and write to what the characters were doing. And that wasn't really working out. So then he was trying to like write to like the subtext of what they were talking about. And that didn't really work. And he said he ended up focusing on how the light was coming through the trees and like the light and the shadows. And he wrote a piece like based on that. And that ended up really working and the director loved it. And that really stuck with me because it's just such a creative like way yeah. of solving a problem, really. So no creative block, look at, it from a, look at it from a different way. So you're in Spain, you know, coming to the UK. Yeah, so after, after Spain, I went back home for a bit. And yeah, I was just kind of waiting around doing that album, getting kind of bored. And I, I was trying to find some kind of film projects to work on in Cape Town and I just wasn't really having much luck. I just moved over like without a job or anything. My, my aunt lives here, so I was staying with her for a while, for quite a long while. <laughs> I, I couldn't have really done without that because I was just hanging around looking for work, really trying to find any work, but like it had to do with music. It's really easy to get distracted and 
and I, I only really moved here like for music so I was like I'm gonna try and really get involved however I can so yeah that's that's how I kind of just ended and up and that's here. you didn't hang around because the first thing you're involved with Patrick Doyle and Murder in the Orient Express which one exactly is small production yeah I wrote to this composer called Patrick Johnson okay um, so he's like a London based composer I, I think I was sending a lot of emails at the time to studios looking for work and and most of the time you just don't really hear anything back Patrick like just wrote back straight away he was like you know I don't really have any work at the moment but if you want to come down to my studio and just say hi and like we can have a talk and maybe like later if something comes comes along like I'll give you a call so I just went and met him and he was super nice then a couple of months later he had this project he was working on he was like if you want just do some general like assisting stuff and I think what I ended up doing in the beginning a lot was like just you clean up the kind of sessions so he would like he would have these sessions that he writes in Pro Tools and then it would have to go to the orchestrator to get it ready for the recording so just make all the scores for the musicians so I think the first thing I was doing was just like tidying up all the MIDI notes and getting them ready for for the orchestrator to turn into scores so quite basic stuff it's quite hard to just get in there yeah so I was really just grateful and like happy to be working on on something and it was great as well because like with the assisting in London like you feel like you're just part of the team and if if they know that you're going to do a good job like they'll keep calling you back and I think then through doing stuff for the orchestrator she was really nice and she then a couple of weeks later she said oh I'm doing this other project can you help me with this and that's like a different composer and a different project so suddenly I was kind of just just slowly kind of making these like contacts and yeah it's a good contacts list it sounds like you were building up there yeah quite a slow process as well but just like slow and steadily like yeah um, so, so how did you get things. involved with Murder in New York Express Patrick Johnson his kind of agency his composer agency um Patrick Doyle is on that agency as well they just needed someone to do some assisting for Patrick Doyle so they yeah. gave me a call and because I just because I'd been around I think doing it for other composers there they so gave me a call on IMDB you're listed as music track lay for yeah. Patrick Doyle what on earth does that mean you say that you write the whole score in logic and you've got all your kind of music is there for each cue of the film then you want to do the recording and the mixing and everything you need all of the tracks to be audio files you need your like flutes and right. your clarinets and all of these things as like individual audio files which really just means that you have to open up each session and go through track by track and kind of get the audio out of the computer basically right. yeah did you have a lot of dealings with patrick doyle not a lot i mean i was working at his studio so i, I saw him kind of work and stuff and that was cool and he's obviously like a big hero of mine he's a great composer and yeah and was really nice guy really friendly so it was fun it was definitely the biggest thing i've worked on like with him like the scale of everything was much bigger i was really worried with murder in order express to, to listen to that score because i'm a huge fan of richard ronnie bennett's work for the 1974 ah, film yeah, yeah. and particularly the waltz he did for the train but again patrick don knocked it out of the park it's a great score when they were doing the orchestral recordings like i couldn't make it on the day they were doing the like full orchestra i went the next day to like air and 
I was really glad I went that day because that was the day that Patrick, he was just doing the, the piano recordings for the piano tracks in the film, which were, I think, like, those, those were my favorite pieces where the little, mm-hmm. they just were these, like, kind of, kind of sim- simplistic sounding, but, like, not simple, just very, like, charming little piano pieces. It's as you were saying earlier about matching the image to the music, and it just works a treat in that film. He didn't get anybody else to come and play the piano. He went and played it and recorded it, so that was really cool to see, like him just playing his own his own piano parts in there. Have you seen the finished film? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, it was quite surreal to to be able to work, and yeah, to be in the credits as well was very, was really unexpected because I you don't always get listed in the credits, yeah. especially for like that kind of job because it's not there's no composing involved in that. You just are doing a technical just a kind of necessary job I got invited to the screening with the like kind of music team so they did a screening in Leicester Square like at the Odeon for the cast and crew that was just there and we were watching all the credits at the end and I saw like I had this credit for Trackley and I was like oh that's that's really cool brilliant that is brilliant brilliant that's the same cinema I saw it in cool yeah Yeah. yeah, (laughs) so are you back for the sequel Death on the Nile which starts filming later this year no, I don't. I, I don't know. Um, uh, I actually okay. haven't. I've kind of. I've stopped really doing that stuff so oh, yeah, much. Uh, the right. assisting stuff, re- just recently. But let's be fair. You're moving on up, which we're going to come on to now. Yeah, it's just like a case of things happen to be like a little bit busier now, and then those projects were kind of like two weeks of just a black hole. Like you don't do anything else. I think. The, fir- the first thing, before the murder on the Orient Express, I think the very first thing I did was um, the Emoji movie, which Patrick Doyle did the, the music for. But you were for. on that as well, yeah? Yeah, that, so that was actually did, the first Did you have that one. deliberately removed from your IMDb page? I don't know. I just, it never, I, I n- it never got added on. Oh, okay. I don't know. I, I haven't actually see, seen the film. No, I, Neil's our animation expert. He would have seen it. But I mean, now... That was like real hundreds tra- tracks because they had an orchestra and then loads of synthesizer stuff, you know. It was, it was a huge score. I mean, the score was really cool um, yeah. that he did for it. And uh, that I was like working through the nights and like I was get- getting there at 6 p.m. and like going home at 6 a.m. like doing Jeez. the night shift on that one. Moving on, mm. a lot of your work has gone into the documentary field, and as yeah. I said earlier, some very powerful documentaries. And one of those is reading about is a film called On Her Shoulders. You know, given the subject matter, which is about sex slaves from ISIS, mm-hmm. I don't know if I could watch it, to be quite honest. But what was it that drew you to that documentary? So that's another film that um, Patrick Johnson worked on. So okay. basically, like, I don't do so much of the assisting stuff now, yeah. but I do a lot still with Patrick. So we work together quite a lot. And he works on... Um, just really amazing documentaries so most of those these documentaries are things that he's composed for yeah and i've just assisted him on but like the kind of nature of what i do is always different on there what was it you did on on her shoulders i think on her shoulders was a case of like doing some orchestration prep as well like getting things ready for the score nothing major on that one again like just beautiful music like he writes just great stuff and when you like work on a documentary that does well then other people that are making documentaries are 
drawn to like contact you so you tend to work in the the same style the same yeah. fields a bit same cheery ones like Evelyn for example <laughs> how did Evelyn yeah. come about was that as so you were Ev- saying Evelyn is content? yeah Pat- Patrick did the music as well for that yeah but uh, he that knows one, how to pick him doesn't he family suicide this time yeah well that's um that's the same uh director that did uh Virunga so he has he just he works on films with that director all okay. the time and yeah and Evelyn is about that director's family so that's it was a really personal one for him and they're just really good friends so it's like obviously they're gonna like work together on that um, yeah. film it was in the BFI festival last year as well yeah, which is mm, really good yeah it's a really beautiful film I think on, on that one I wasn't really assisting I just I, I was playing the piano okay. so I did all the like recorded all the piano stuff that Patrick wrote did so that, I was just a performer on that one really did that take a lot of time not a lot really it was just like one day of going to the studio it sent me the scores before so I was like having a look at them practicing I don't get to play piano like as much anymore so it was really nice I had to go to the studio and they were the director and the producer were there behind the screen so no, <laughs> I right. was quite terrified <laughs> I was very nervous no, no, yeah no pressure at all as Neil would say there so what's it like you're playing or you're assisting and these are very hard-hitting documentaries. I can't say that enough from the little I've seen on them. Yeah. Does that impact on you? I don't know. I think when I think in terms of like the recording and stuff, you know, you just really, or even like writing music, you. I think you do tend to just focus on like on the task at hand a bit, and you you try and just make something or play in a way that's like musically feels right so i guess in a way you kind of lock yourself off from like the feeling like overpowered by the the subject matter and you you just try and like capture a moment like as you need it we're in an interesting time for documentaries at the moment they are really really big i mean netflix's top rated film of the month i think is the great hack the documentary about cambridge analytica i mean they had a big success with that documentary on the flat earthers so all of these sort of things so there's a huge appetite for documentary at the moment so it's a it's a it's a good market to be in and i guess you're freed a bit from the censorship of what tv could do to you as well yeah so let's take your music then for bruce lee and the outlaws which for anybody listening is not about bruce lee i'll let you introduce what the film is because you did compose this one so yeah it's not actually about bruce lee it's 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 set in bucharest and it's about these street kids these and they're they're orphans and they're just like kind of homeless kids that live in in the tunnels underneath bucharest there's this guy who calls himself bruce lee and kind of paints himself silver and he's just a bit of a crazy character but he actually like takes care of these kids and makes a home and he he himself is like an orphan that grew up on the streets and so it's just yeah following this kind of weird story and the director for that is a dutch photographer called Joost van der Brug so he's not really like he he wasn't a filmmaker really he was okay he was a photographer and he just met these kids and he would like take a photo of the kids and then the next day like bring it and give it to them and then they kind of really grew to like him and they invited him in to they were like oh do you want to see where we live like we're just down in these in these tunnels i think the the bruce lee guy had been in the news quite a lot like he was this quite controversial 
character in Romania, but nobody had really been able to get much information about him because he because he just lives like in the tunnels. Yost kind of ended up just having just by chance like having this kind of insight into this whole world that no one really knew about. It's a very like surreal kind of film to watch and also very quite a heavy one as well because ultimately it's like about homeless kids mm. and it's it is quite tough to watch sometimes but then it's got these kind of moments of like humor and even though it's quite a dire situation like there are some really big personalities and characters and it kind of makes you laugh sometimes and yeah so yeah it's really interesting i mean i'll be honest i haven't seen the film yet i've seen the trailer it's um, not out get, yet right? you know, so that's probably <laughs> yeah. why i haven't seen it um but i have listened to your score and i find the approach you've taken on this quite interesting in the little bits that i've seen you've gone for a almost an ethnic instrument way of getting you into the story so we were saying about how documentary uses music and correct me if I'm wrong but it seems to me you've gone for the locale to bring you in and then let the story tell itself yeah that was part of it and that was also because Yoast from the beginning like had this idea that their kind of background all the all of the the subjects of the documentary they have this uh, Roma background so he really wanted to have a sense of that music he he mentioned a lot like having this troubadour sound that he wanted some in some parts where it's like somebody playing on the like a street musician basically and to kind of have that raw sound like not not polished or produced but like try and capture the sound of somebody just playing live which was tricky for me because i because I, li- I listened to a lot of the like in the lead up to it I was listening to a lot of this like traditional Roma music where it's these um, amazing old guys playing a troubadour band and it just sounds yeah. incredible and it's got all this life and I was thinking how am I how do I do that on my own in my in my little like dark room and try and recreate this so, uh, so you feel. played every one of the instruments that's on there? Played a lot of the instruments, yeah. Just, what instrument just selection my, did you have? A <laughs> bunch of uh, drums, like some guitars, uh, a little mandolin, a little concertina. I didn't have an accordion, so but I had this little wooden concertina. And I couldn't really play it properly. And it was kind of not in great condition either. It was very out of tune. And I ended up kind of sampling it. And then I would use those, I'd kind of pitch them down so that they became this like low bass thing or like turn them into pads. And and because it's like had all of these kind of weird creaky things that in the original, like when you just play it, they sounded terrible, like these squeaking notes. But when you kind of stretch the audio, all those little squeaks become these really interesting artifacts. And especially if you've got like a big reverb on, then it just sounds like this whole new thing and that that was kind of something that I tried a lot because I couldn't I didn't want to be like trying to play exactly like this authentic band yeah rather I would try and get like the instruments do some samples of the instruments and then manipulate the sounds so that I could use them without playing them and even if it didn't sound like a mandolin anymore you know that at the basis of that sound you've got this like traditional instrument is there so I think it also kind of lent itself to being a bit raw and kind of unpolished, which worked in in my favor because I could kind of just record things as best I could and then make them work. 
the picture is very like it's it's not it doesn't feel like this big polished thing it's just like you're watching quite raw real things happen or i don't know it was just a good like learning experience mm. really and use uh, for for like using what you have in the time you've got you were saying earlier about music that is really good sort of away from the film I, I think a lot of the score for Bruce Lee and the Outlaws is like that I mean oh, that, tracks, that's very kind of oh, you no, to you're say. welcome I mean <laughs> tracks that stood out for me were things like So Long Old Friends and Snow Underground I thought were really nice pieces well this, the Snow ones were nice because they were kind of these they're these interludes in the film because it's all very documentary and just like you're watching stuff happen but the, there were these few scenes that were just like almost uh yeah interludes of snow yeah that they use to kind of just space out the film a bit and for that i had a friend record some vocals like uh female vocals over that yeah in the end i ended up recording like a vocalist and a viola player and then aside from that the things the rest of the recorded stuff was just stuff i could play myself like guitar or the drums and the mandolin and to have two other people to like contribute some stuff was really nice like we just had like a day recording them and they added so much and like the snow thing just has this really beautiful female mm. vocal thing yeah. like and it's just this recurring thing that comes back as you listen through the soundtrack I re- yeah I really like those tracks as well because they stand out from the other one yeah really really good so when can we see this film um, I'm still not sure basically they they've been uh, touring like just doing the kind of festival circuit for about a year now yeah and they're still getting it into festivals all around the world and I think they're just waiting they're kind of just going to see how it goes like see how many festivals they can get it into before they release it but then yeah eventually I'm sure by the end of the year it's going to be out I'm just not sure when but let's just return back and obviously look to bring this to a close and talk a bit about another feature film the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society where again you're credited as being the assistant to composer Alexandra Harwood yeah how how did that go again lovely film lovely score yeah yeah she's just a really great composer as well and someone that I met through when I was talking before about when I first worked with Patrick and then his his orchestrator would give me some work here and there and she introduced me to to Alex Harwood and yeah just kind of I would go to her studio and just do like some general assisting stuff like she I I think for that film I was just doing Pro Tools things so she was working in Logic and we needed to get all the music to Pro Tools for the mix and the recording kind of just go and sit on my laptop with Pro Tools and as she was finishing stuff it loaded up in in there yeah really nice to work with and yeah, yeah and, cool and it's a great, great film, film to work yeah, on yeah. yeah and unlike some of the documentaries it's actually happy um. <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. one of the few happy happy films on my so tough question now put you on the spot what are your favorite film scores I don't, yeah it is tough i kind of struggle with that because I, I was going to ask you your favorite so composers many. i thought that might be too much there thrown in well I think one of my favorite scores is, has always been and probably the like reason I was, did film music is The Good, The Bad and The Ugly like Ennio oh, Morricone yeah. and just all of his music really he's I just think I just remember thinking like this is amazing that someone can write this kind of 
I don't know, just this music. But, but it's not only the main... I mean, the track for Always Gets Me is Ecstasy of Gold. Ecstasy of Gold, Which yeah. is just incredible piece. And that's the piece where Eli Wallach's running through the cemetery at the end. But the music is phenomenal. And it's just like one of those things as well. It's It's got... The, the films that he was doing it for were also just done in this way where a solid minute just on someone's face like yeah. a close up of their eye or something and you've got this amazing music going in the back and you, you don't see that you don't really get that too often anymore like no. where there's just so much room for the music to flourish and for you to just sit and watch something and things aren't moving or happening you're just like looking at a screen where it's like stuck on something but you you feel you really do get into the experience a lot he is just an amazing composer and a more contemporary person i really love is uh johnny greenwood like yeah. i love his scores i just think yeah. he's always just very creative i i think these days i i really listen for someone that's just doing stuff that you don't expect but it still works yeah like, and i really just admire how people can experiment so much and on things that are so high, like such high profile films you have to be very strong to like have a very strong personality and a strong vision to to push yeah. something that's a bit weird and get it get it through the final and and yet he can do something so melodic like phantom thread yeah it's like I mean, that, beautiful it's just absolutely one of the best themes i've heard in years yeah and like there will be blood is just oh, amazing. amazing yeah <laughs> yeah because nobody speaks in what the first 20 minutes or something like that I know, yeah. it's just his music somebody said that um, they were glad he was nominated i think he was nominated for phantom thread i have to go back and check and they said they're glad he was because they want to see him in a tux <laughs> <laughs> yeah great great composers but let's focus on you what's next for you i've got a few things but they're kind of coming up for like next year really so and it's it's the first time for me that because yeah with the last film that was just you know do you want to do the film and then okay there's a month to do it so now there's a few things that have a bit of time and I'm just trying to work out how to best manage my time really so I don't leave everything to the last minute there's another documentary that I think is not going to be so heavy (laughs) 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 yeah I think this one should be a lot lighter it's just kind of about everything's like up in the air a bit really but I don't want to say too much no and I fully appreciate that I mean when they crystallize Mm. we'd love to come back and chat to you about them again if if we may Daniel it's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to talking to you again about future projects. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for coming, oh. coming over. No, Cheers. thank you for allowing us. Cheers. Thank thanks. you, guys. A really great guy who also introduced us to a fantastic pub in London. Daniel is very talented and we believe will go far in the film music scene. Hopefully, we will be catching up again with him next year to learn about more of his projects currently in development. I can't wait, so if you want to check out more of Daniel's work, please check out the links in the show notes. Okay, time to get suited and booted for the movie news. It's been almost three months since we last had what we would call a traditional movie news. We had August off and last month we had a special 
on-set report about Falkland Square. Some of us did. No, Neil, you were on the bench. Think of yourself as first reserve. (laughs) I have a feeling I should be on the bench if Jeff is returning to his normal format, as I always get mentally injured in this movie news game. Your injuries are the listener's gain. As you are that keen, Graham, why don't you start? Oh, no, you bastard, Jeff. Another Gerard Butler update. I know how much you pined after you missed the excellent Angel Has Fallen last month. So I thought I would let you update the listeners with the latest Gerard news. Excellent Angel Has Fallen. Did you see a different film to me, Jeff? Nick Nolte was good. Nice one, Neil. Play it down so Graham doesn't get too upset about missing it. Over to you, Graham. (laughs) Really, Jeff, you want me to read this? Okay. That wonderful actor, Gerard (laughs) Butler, (laughs) the action star of his generation, really, has just finished filming the disaster epic Greenland. Is it a disaster because he's in it? Yes, that's it. You're not reading the script, are you? (laughs) Otherwise, it's a really nice movie. Yeah. This will almost certainly be one not to miss in 2019. Jeff Gibson off, or maybe in this case, Butler off. If I have to deliver this news, I will deliver it in my way, not yours. Yes, Gerard Butler did recently finish filming Greenland. I know what you're thinking. Is this a movie where Orange Man, rebuffed from buying Greenland a couple of months ago, sends in the American army to invade? Their army veteran, Jared, and a few Eskimos. Jeff, Inuits, not Eskimos. Eskimo? What? Are you in the 1950s? Yeah, pretty much. And a few Inuit types lead a Rambo-style defense and force Orangemen and the American army back home again. Sounds great, except it's not this film. No, Greenland is a disaster epic, more in the style of Deep Impact or Armageddon. Or, God forbid, Meteor. I thought (laughs) Meteor was great. Natalie Wood, fantastic. (sighs) Showed she wasn't Wood in that. (laughs) Okay. A comet is heading close to Earth, and the population of the planets celebrate the celestial fireworks. However, scientists soon realize that hidden behind the comet are larger ones, potential planet killers, on a collision course with Earth. Greenland is a possible safe haven for what is left of the population. Listening to that, Graham, and obviously it wasn't originally what I wrote for you, but it was still good. I've got to think, maybe Orangeman was right in trying to buy Greenland. He saw this come in. I always said he was wiser than he looks. (laughs) You didn't. (laughs) Or maybe the filmmakers told him this script idea and he thought it was real. Maybe like you, Jeff, he's a big Gerard Butler fan. Hey, Gerard Butler's big in the Ukraine. (laughs) He's big everywhere. (laughs) It sounds awful. And the fact that Rick Roman Waugh is directing, he also directed Angel Has Fallen, is not selling it to me. Maybe, Graham, you should watch Angel Has Fallen before making a comment like that. I'm only going on your review where you criticised his direction. Ah, fair point. You caught me out on logic. Okay, let's move on. Who else is in Greenland, Graham? Actually, it's not a bad cast, as it includes Marina Baccaran from the Deadpool films, veteran actor Scott Glenn from such cult films as The Keep, and more mainstream fare such as Silence of the Lambs and The Hunt for Red October, and Joshua Mickle from TV's The Walking Dead. Can I just check that? You said the word cult then, yeah? Every month he makes that same joke. 
He writes it in and then goes the same joke. He's um, Marina Baccaran was in Serenity and uh, and V, the TV series we make. Yeah, she was the and Homeland. She's she was the prostitute in Firefly. Yeah, filming has finished and expect Greenland to be one of the big ones next summer, unless a comet strikes the planet beforehand. A difficult choice for me there. Providing disaster doesn't strike, Gerald Butler will begin filming Den of Thieves 2, the sequel to the hit first movie from a couple of years ago. Probably a hit because Gerard was in it, says Jeff. Damn, accidentally read out something Jeff wrote there. I mean to say, a hit despite Gerard being in it. In this sequel, which features most of the surviving cast from the first one, the action switches to Europe. Here, Nick O'Brien, butler, leads his task force in another attempt to capture or kill Donnie Wilson, while also trying to avoid the mafia who are out to stop him. If this is about to film on the continent, maybe Brexit isn't such a bad idea. Well, thanks for that, Jeff. I think I need a shower now. It struck you that Denethys 2 sounds a lot like the Italian job. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, while you go and wash Gerard off you, I'm sure you'll enjoy that in the <laughs> shower there, I'll hand over to Neil, who has something of a scoop for us. Indeed I do. Thanks to our American reporter, filming in Augusta, Georgia in October is a film called El Dorado. Our breaking news is there is no film called El Dorado. This is, in fact, The Suicide Squad the reboot of the DC Comics anti-hero group under the direction of James Gunn. Gunn signed up for this when he was fired by Disney for inappropriate comments 15 years ago. Be warned, Jeff. Fired (laughs) for inappropriate comments. Yes, it can happen. It was a sad thing to happen. Except you only learned learned how to do Twitter about two years ago. Yeah, but hang on a minute. He was fired for inappropriate (laughs) comments, right? They've now taken him back. And giving him a raise. What's that telling you? No, Jeff, no. Don't. Don't go down there. James Gunn agreed to write and direct The Suicide Squad for Warner's Brothers before Disney reinstated him for the upcoming Guardians of the Galaxy 3. So under the guise of El Dorado, this film starring Margot Robbie, Joel Kinnaman, Taika Waititi, Eldris Elba, Viola Davis and Peter Capaldi is about to film in Augusta. Even more of a scoop, we have seen the call sheets for the day The Suicide Squad is filming. It looks like prison sequences are being filmed there and they are looking for 22 to 65-year-olds who have police military training to be extras. Jeff, you're ruled out on every count there. <laughs> I'll let you know. I've had police training. Being arrested is not police training. <laughs> and not just the ones either. Enough of Jeff's criminal past and back to the Suicide Squad. Don't hold your breath waiting for this one. It's not due to be released until August 2021. Well, it's your age, Jeff. It's touch and go for you to be around for it. <laughs> oh, thanks, Neil. That's quite enough from you. I'll take over now. Just started filming in Dublin is This Nan's Life, a spin-off feature starring Catherine Tate about one of her most popular characters, the foul-mouthed grandmother. Really? How on earth are they going to get a whole movie out of that one character? She's foul-mouthed and xenophobic. Jeff, have you noticed a film crew following you around? <laughs> Thanks, for sort of clues as to how to do it. Coming from a man with little more charisma than Dominic Cummins and Dominic Raab combined. Oh, 
and the same dress sense. Well, maybe there. (laughs) In answer to Graham's point, I'll ignore Neil's, the film will have many flashback sequences, so you see Nan in her younger days. Some of the on-set photos, which have been released, have shown Catherine Tate in period costume. Maybe this could be a better version of Downton Abbey. (laughs) Well, with jokes at least. In respect of casting, apart from Catherine Tate, the excellent Matthew Horne, also known for his role in Gavin and Stacey, returns and also in the cast is Catherine Parkinson from the IT crowd. Perhaps the biggest surprise for this film is that the director is Josie Rourke, who last year directed Mary Queen of Scots. Wow, that is unexpected. Agreed. However, it shows a willingness to tackle very commercial property and will be a good addition to the CV if it works. And let's be fair, it's got to be better than Mary Queen of Scots. Oh, harsh. And on that controversial note, let's go to Lucy for her current view of the movies. A few weeks ago, during one of the last hot weekends of the summer, we caught up with Lucy for a film chat and a couple of drinks. At some point, Jeff thought it would be a great idea to capture some of this conversation so that we could share it with you. I tried to tell him the last time this happened, we ended up talking slash shouting about Vice. By that time, it was too late as, well, basically Jeff never listens to anyone and he had made Graham set up the recording equipment. Which meant I had to stop drinking and be the sober one to monitor the recording. After I took out all of Jeff's drunken rantings, here is the conversation, which is a reflection on 2019 film year to date. Welcome to one of our most popular sections, Lucy's Guide to the Movies. Now this month, we're going to take a break from horror, in part at least. And we're going to look back on the year so far and decide, is it been a good or a bad year? And we're going to take in the fuss on the Oscars. Where are we with horror films? Are we having too many musical biopics? Disney Fox, good or bad? And what was it with that summer season? Lucy, welcome to the show. Nice to be back. Thank you, guys. So do you think I've covered accurately what we're going to be talking about? I think you have. There's a lot to talk about. So let's kick off then with the start of the year and the Oscars. So Green Book won Best Oscar. Well deserved. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you agree, Phil, if you're listening. (laughs) Um, What are your thoughts on Green Book, Lucy? I think it was a very good film and it got a lot of criticism unreasonably. I felt it was a really, really good film, really strong performances, but for some reason, Twitter hated it. And I don't really understand why. <laughs> I thought Maharshala Ali was very, very good. Um, I thought his character was very good in the sense that he didn't really know where he belonged. Um, he was very much an outcast. And a lot of us can relate to that. And I thought it was a beautifully done film, personally. I know a lot of people would hate that kind of view, but I really enjoyed it. Now, for our listeners, you may be thinking... This is crystal clear Skype we've got this month. In fact, Lucy is in the studio with us. I am, yes. Yes, so uh, we're all around the table, drinking wine. Well, just me. And me. Oh, and Jeff, yes, yeah. and Jeff. Yeah. I've, I've drunk my wine. All oh, right, okay, and Neil has drunk his. And, and some type master didn't fill my wine See, cup. We're slow, we're I'm slow. still waiting. <laughs> have you not had a drink yet? I have, yes. Oh. Okay. But I haven't had another one. It's probably a good thing. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll sort that out in a bit. So, as you can see, it is summer, although when this goes out, it may well not be because those three days pass very quickly. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting on Green Book. Lance, your thoughts? Yeah, I loved it. Whether it's the best film of the year, I don't know. But it certainly yeah. is mine. 
Yeah, I loved it. I thought the pacing was excellent. I loved the way the slow build up, the the start. You don't know where it's going. Then they have the meet up, and then it's a road trip. It's uh, a great with a different, story, isn't and it? it's a great story. Yeah. So yeah. why do you think it's so controversial? Wow. Okay, Jeff, just drop one on us. Like <laughs> yeah, that's my job. Yes. A lot of people wanted to be very hard hitting, and it's not. It's a movie first. It's a feel good movie. It's a, a road trip with discovery at the end. Um, discovery for all the, both the main characters, and I think a lot of people were expecting it to be something like, you know, Twelve Years a Slave or Moonlight, that sort of level of uh, racial reality. I mean, there's there's a couple of reviewers who came out with a comment that um, it's a film for white middle class people. I conform to that. And I think that's a reasonable comment. I think, you know, obviously I'm not middle class at all. <laughs> so I feel no, like I would I, say you are. Well, not mm-hmm. really, but I feel like, you know, I grew up in the North East, so I, I grew up in... in you in, live in London now, Lucy. I do, but not my upbringing. So I, I feel like I can And your job it. is very middle class. Fine, but that's not that's not how I was raised. <laughs> I've kind Jeff, of gone Jeff, from the Jeff's past. Going he does this all the time. I know. Um, but the point is, I feel like it was a very honest way of representing how society was at the time. And, you know, people weren't accepted and people didn't know who they were. And I feel like it was a very important film. You know, that scene when, like, he throws glasses in the bin because, like, you know, African-Americans are drank from them. It's very significant of what would have happened back then. And I just feel like it was important to show that because people were awful back then. You know, and I feel like Viggo Mortensen's character went on such a journey and maybe it was too oversimplified, but I thought it was good. A lot of people are criticising that, but I thought it was a good journey. I yeah, I, I agree. I mean, mm-hmm. again, a lot of people criticise the fact that Peter Farrelly directed it because, yeah. you know, he made something about Mary. Mm-hmm. But the fact is you need somebody there that can balance the dark side of it with the light side of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Pardon the pun on that. Exactly. There's two really telling scenes in this film, which I think people misrepresent. One is the scene when he's got to change the tyre. He gets out of the car. Mahershala Ali is sitting in the back of the car watching him. In this field opposite, a poor black people... Picking cotton. Picking Picking cotton. cotton. Yeah. And they're watching what may... Mm -hmm. uh, Graham, I think you said it best. They may well have been on Mars watching this. Yeah, it did. It looked like... For them, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. He's a white man... Mm -hmm helping a black man get back into the car and driving him around and fixing his car. That's the thing with his character is because he doesn't know where he belongs. So it's this really complicated situation in which he feels like he doesn't belong anywhere. And And that's really hard. And I think that's very true. And Mm -hmm. the other scene for me was the scene when the police stopped them. Yep. Because at one point, and I won't use the word Graham, so you won't have to beep it. (laughs) The policeman says to him, you're Italian, you're part N." yourself uh-huh. and he just belts him just dumps yep. him straight away without thinking yep. you know you see the racial intolerance that's still within the Viggo Mortensen character yep. I think it's a great film I've got a total respect for Spike Lee there's so many things about Spike Lee that every film student should be watching mm-hmm. but I think on this he's wrong I, I mean agree. it has its place and that's the important yeah. thing it's not going to cover everything it has its specific place Spike Lee does have a point that he's a black man looking at it as a black man so you really need to read his comments and think about and, them and i think that's mm-hmm. fair and this it brings me to, yeah, yeah that brings me to a wider issue when you get films like overlord when you get films like gangster squad that captain show america captain america that show 
integrated units fighting in World War II. Now, if you put black and white soldiers together in America in World War II, they would have killed each other. Mm -hmm. So the fact you had these units, and they're showing them as that's what happened. This sort of redresses the balance because historically it's correct. Regardless of everything you can say about this film, historically it's correct. Yeah, and, so I, I, and I, I, I really dislike when they put multiracial groups together in a historical context because yeah. that's just untrue. Yeah. I mean, there was an awful lot of fighting mm-hmm. for civil rights that went on to, to, to get, you know, the modern day uh, black and white integrated troops that you saw in Vietnam and that caused its own problems as you see in lots of Vietnam films. Apocalypse Now is a great did, example. Did you now? like Overlord? As an aside. No, I didn't. No, you didn't. <laughs> I, and the reason I didn't is I couldn't get into it. So that the, okay. the, you got this sole black soldier in with these white guys. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the black guy that's leading the platoon. Mm-hmm. Would never happen. Right. Had they played it to the fact that it was a black squad going in and maybe they were harassed by the white squad before they went on the mission, planes crashed and a lot of planes crashed on D-Day. They then had to work together. So you had a, another level of the racial in- intolerance. Mm-hmm. Before you got to the German superpower zombie bit, it would have worked a lot more for me. I think that put me off. Captain America was the same. I okay. love the concept of Captain America, but he had a multinational fighting force. And I know it's a mm. <coughs> sorry comic book. Thing. Sorry, I struggled to get that word out. It was so well done. Comic <laughs> brilliant, book. brilliant act. <laughs> Gangster Squad is exactly the same. Now we've been sensible. Let's move away from that and let's talk about where we are with horror this year. Okay, if you guys want to take a back seat now, Je- uh, Neil and I will pick this one up. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Yeah. Okay. So, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to cover, I think, three films yep. that symbolise where we are. Mm-hmm. We're not going to talk about the horror sequels, the Annabelle type thing and all those going out there. We're going to talk about three films that are individual in themselves, Us, Midsommar and Brightburn, which I think give a a reflection on where horror is at the moment. Have you seen any of them, lads? Uh, Strangely, no. (laughs) What are your thoughts on those films, on the originality of them? I mean, where do you want to start? I mean, there's a lot to talk about there. No, there's not. No, there's not. Not for there, the there is, There's a lot to talk no. about. Um, <laughs> so they're, they're original. Yes. I think that's fair. I think we agree on that. Yes. I mean, because I'm the only one who's seen Brightburn, it feels fair that I talk about that first because it's and just me. Yeah, what the irony in that is these two should have seen Brightburn. Well, particularly yes. Graham should have seen Brightburn. Yes, because... And now you're just picking on me. Because Brightburn is a reimagining of Superman. What if he was evil? And what if he came to Earth and discovered he had evil powers? Fantastic trailer, fantastic, you know, sort of setup, and it just didn't work for me personally. It, the special effects were awful, you know, it just sort of went down this horrible sort of end point. Jackson A. Dunn, the main actor, was fantastic in it, and I thought as a child actor he was great, but other than that, it just wasn't a good film. I, got, I gave it three stars over on my blog, but it just, it was average at best. Did um, you have a strong cast? Was on Elizabeth Banks in it as well? Yes, but honestly, she was traditional screaming woman in a horror film which just she didn't have a lot going on for her you know what I mean like it was more about Jackson A. Dunn as, as the the Superman character and it was more about his development and it just didn't work the trailer like I say you watch the trailer you've seen the whole film it just didn't work for me very disappointing yeah I think we could the screaming woman in the horror film mm-hmm. we could subvert that cliche oh yeah put mm-hmm. Neil in it <laughs> well, yeah. you would Neil wouldn't you you would be that person 
But no, I mean, but <laughs> I think obviously it's hard for me to review Brightburn without you guys seeing it. But I no, just feel I, like I, it was yeah, it was all I mean, right. It was it was okay. Like yeah, but it didn't. So not step worth out. watching then. No, Thank honestly, you. no. It could have been so good, and it just wasn't. So back to horror mm-hmm. and two that I have seen along with you. Yeah, Us and Midsummer. Yes. So I think Jeff and I are pretty much in agreement that Us had a very very strong. Like half of the film, the first half. Three quarters. Very, I actually go three quarters. Three quarters. Yeah, fine. So obviously, um, Lupita Nyong'o was fantastic. Like obviously, her doppelganger character was so scary. Like so, so good. Had a really, really good potential, but it just suddenly went downhill at the end point. And I feel like we're in agreement that it just didn't work. So you built this thing up where yep. this family mm-hmm. are on holiday. And they're confronted by doppelgangers of themselves who are evil and just basically want to kill them and want to torture them. Mm-hmm. And it's then, can they escape? Where do they go? And the whole thing starts escalating from there. And it's really, really good. I mean, Jordan Peele and how he handles the tension is great. Yeah. And then it decides to, well, we'll explain where all this comes from. And then it falls apart in your hand like a wet paper bag. The performances were fantastic, though. I mean, I'm sure you'll agree. Like, the performances were really, really good, and it had a lot of potential, but I feel like there was a lot of speculation before the film, and nobody got it right. Yeah. Because nobody expected him to have that resolution in that way, and it just didn't make any sense. Yeah. Now, you've seen Mirror Image, the Twilight Zone episode, mm-hmm. that inspired him to make this. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I enjoyed that, you know. I kind yeah. of liked the ambiguity there, because it wasn't too ambitious. Whereas with us, he was trying to kind of argue that, again, spoiler alert, it was the entire United States and it's kind of like, that's not real. Whereas yeah. Mirror Image was a, on a lot of a lesser scale, as I remember it. All set in the bus station. Exactly, in the bus Graham? station. Yeah, I remember it vaguely. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The- and I think it's going to be interesting where we're going to go next is we have a, a strong start, a strong setup and a weak finale. Exactly. And let's go to Midsummer, <laughs> which I think is exactly the same, but I don't think you agree with no, me No, I this. don't. Again, we're going to get really spoiler heavy here, but I feel like Ari Aster is fantastic at portraying grief. You know, Midsummer and Hereditary were good at grief and the sort of like how people comprehend that. Florence Pugh was fantastic. The way she goes from being like this submissive girlfriend to sort of actually having a community that accepts her in the most twisted way is a really, really good way of doing it. A lot of the characters you kind of hate because they're all assholes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Do you think it just riffed off the Wicker Man? I don't think so. No. No. I feel like it was a good catharsis for her because that boyfriend, again, massive, massive spoiler alert, deserved to burn to death because he he was an arsehole. He deserved that. (laughs) Listeners, please note, do not cross Lucy. Yes. Yeah. Um, Safety notice here, don't burn your boyfriend. Yes. No, I mean... I'm not in a cult disclaimer, just, you know. <laughs> no, 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 that's, 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 that's fine. I have no um, plans on that. But but I do think, I mean, it's interesting you say that about mm-hmm. the Wicker Man. I would challenge that because okay. the Wicker Man works mm-hmm. because it's a whole setup from beginning to mm-hmm. end to get them to hit certain points. Yep. Midsummer is exactly the same. They have to be in certain points. Mm-hmm. But once they got there, if they tried to break from the path they'd set them mm-hmm. on, they'd kill them. In terms of that, yes, but I feel like the narrative was very different. The tensest moment I've seen in cinema this year mm-hmm. is with the old people on the cliff. Oh, yes. And you knew something was going to happen. Yeah. I didn't know what it was. And when it happened, mm-hmm. the British couple, I thought, reacted in a way, particularly mm-hmm. when they went over and one guy hadn't died, so they finished him off with a mallet. Yeah. As you, you do. Love it, as you do. And, so, yeah, uh, I'm getting flashbacks because it was a horrible scene, so yeah. I know what it was like. Um, <laughs> yeah, and to be fair... 
He was a pellet because he jumped feet first off a cliff, high cliff. <laughs> the whole thing with that was this British couple said, well, this is just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. This is wrong. And the Americans turned around and said, yeah, OK, we can go with it. It's culture. William Jackson Harper, who played Josh, he was obsessed with his thesis. So he wanted to look at cults and be like, oh, yeah, this is my thesis. I'm looking at their culture and whatever. So he was he was obsessed with the idea of staying there no matter what they did. So he got a good grade. Is that the guy from The Good Place? Yes. Do you know what? It took me the whole film mm-hmm. to work out where I'd seen him before. Exactly. So that's, that's all he cared about, though. So I, I feel like his character was incredibly naive because he was just like, oh, well, it's a quirky Swedish culture. It's peak ignorance. And they're kind of trying to, to build on that. What I think is interesting about this discussion, and we, we talked about three horror films here, mm-hmm. and each horror film has a big director and writer behind yeah. it mm-hmm. in terms of us and Midsommar, up-and-coming directors, yeah. in terms of Brightburn, you know, as a producer, that guy is yeah, J- really James strong. Gunny, yeah, yeah. So they may be flawed mm-hmm. and we might disagree on them, mm-hmm. but they're interesting. Yeah. What's sad is we're not seeing any breakthrough from anybody new. This no, year. no, and I feel like you and I have briefly touched on the fact that there's too many sequels at the minute. Too many, oh, absolutely. We're too gonna... many, like fifth in the installment. And it's just yeah. like I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the death of narrative cinema, or as, or as Graham would call <laughs> oh, well, it. Oh well, that's a cheerful conversation. <laughs> yeah, sure. or, or as Graham would call it, the superhero movie. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, we've had Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. Nice woman in charge. She's a really good actress. Crap story. Aven- D- disagree, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> Avengers Endgame. Oh, how I wish it was. Let's not forget Spider Man Far From Home, but not bloody far enough. Mm. Um, with Tom, I can't act Holland. The, In your opinion. The only one that had any sign of light for me was Shazam, which I thought was fun. <gasps> that is a big plot twist for me because I didn't think Jeff would like Shazam. I love Shazam. Okay. Same. I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah, well, never try and second guess me, Lucy. Indeed, they try, indeed I... they try, and are constantly caught out. It's because it's DC, and he's still on this DC okay, versus so Marvel. What did you like about Shazam? Like, why was it better than the it rest was of them? Fun. It was fun. It had a plot that worked within itself, mm-hmm. in as, as much as the other films, I don't think didn't, because they all had to feed the greater good. Yep. Shazam only had to feed itself. It was quite interesting in some mm. of its narrative structures about foster parents. I thought it was good. That was yeah. good. But also it had the DC thing of mythical characters. And Marvel doesn't do that anymore. They're not mythical characters. It's trying too much to ground it in reality. There are good Marvel what, films. What, but what does that mean, though? Because they all have superpowers. So how is that not mythical? But there's a, a mythical quality, almost like, if you like, the stories from ancient Greece, where these things were larger than life. Right. Whereas I think with Marvel, yes, they've got these powers, mm. but they try and downplay them into being human. Do you guys agree these- with that? Or? Yeah, actually, it is a quite a, a trope in the comics okay. that Marvel are very much more science-based and, you know, the Tony Starks and that sort of thing, whereas it's gods and monsters mm-hmm. with DC and it's very much technology with uh, Marvel. Not... Not 100%, because Marvel does a lot with vampires and that sort of thing, with Blade and that sort of stuff. This is a point from a much earlier podcast where, growing up as a kid, and I read these comics, and, you know, obviously I was six then, so it's quite understandable at that point. <laughs> and um, Joe never gets old, yeah. does it? No, no, not never, for me. Never. And 
So, uh, but I love that DC feel. You know, the Superman and the Batmans. They are bigger and larger in life. And Marvel are constantly trying to bring it down. Occasionally they get it right. I thought Infinity Wars was one of the best films of last year for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. But generally, this year, they've got all three films wrong. Wow. That's, says, that's says big. Jeff. That's very big, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know I'm in a minority. I can back up my arguments. Anybody listening yeah. like to challenge me? That'll Please be you, don't. Phil. <laughs> but, it's um, not worth it. It's, it's just Jeff trying to be trendy and not... Yeah. Oh, right, OK. Trendy or contrary, <laughs> one of the two. Yeah. Let's move on from superhero movies. Let's talk about the summer season. OK. What are your thoughts on the summer season? I think it's been good. I mean, obviously, the, the major player for me was Toy Story 4. Mm. Well, I can't disagree with that, Lucy. I mean, it was fantastic, One of, one of the right? best films of the year. Yeah, and I think the thing is... I saw Toy Story 3, obviously, back when it was released, and I felt like it was a really good ending. So when they released Toy Story 4, I was thinking, oh, God, like, how are they going to do this? Like, it was a good ending. Like, giving the toys to Bonnie, I was thinking. But it worked really, really well. Mm. Can I ask a frightening question? Uh-huh. Were you even born when the first Toy Story Shut film was Shut up, released? yes, I was. <laughs> yes, it was 1996, I was one. 1995? Oh, so I was like... A few months, but yes, I was. Okay, then. You're cheeky fine. shit, but yes. Um, and you, you can censor that. No, 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 you can censor that. <laughs> Indeed. But the thing is, it was my childhood because I was shown these films. Like, obviously, yeah. even when, like, it was because it was so, so iconic. Yeah. Even in the early 2000s, I was still watching the, these films. So seeing Toy Story 3, I thought, oh, it's such a good ending. Oh, you know, giving the toys to Bonnie, it was such a good closure. How is number four going to work? And it did. It did, yeah. Because... And I just thought, you know, Forky is a bit of a meme. He's a bit of a sort of I'm trash meme. But honestly, the kind of the fact that they had an existential crisis in the middle of Toy Story and it worked, I was like, hmm. this is so good. <laughs> like, really enjoyed yeah, it. I, I thought the great thing about Toy Story 4 was it was two complete films in one. Yes. You know, kids could go along and see it and it's all adventure mm-hmm. and Buzz and Woody rushing about and doing stuff. Well, the parents would be watching a completely different movie mm-hmm. about growing old and yep. responsibilities and the changes in your life. And it was just so well done. I like the fact they kept the horror tropes as well with, with the mannequins. Because oh, yeah. the thing is with Toy Story and what it's done hmm. really well is that even though it's a kid's film, it's had lots of horror tropes throughout. Yeah. Now that's an interesting point. Which is point. very good. So this, is, true. so this is a question, quite a serious question mm-hmm. now, on something you would have seen that we wouldn't see. Yep. When you were growing up with Toy Story and Toy Story mm-hmm. 2, what frightened you as a child watching this? It was Al, wasn't it? Al, his toy barn. Yeah. His was quite scary, actually. The fact that he was willing to kidnap kids and he had the like horrible Cheeto hands and yeah. something to do with this. Like, and the two Barbie dolls in yes. the scene they've now removed. Yes. The, <sighs> like this slimy, greasy character that wanted to like kidnap people isn't a comfortable watch, I think. And I think most recently in Toy Story 3, the Care Bear... With the, with the walking stick. Oh, yeah, that was oh, spooky. Yeah. The yeah. little twist about him and yeah. obviously the, the baby with the eyes and, yeah, it's they're very good at that. So it's fascinating that while horror hasn't really cut it this year, mm-hmm. the fact that Disney come in with a sequel that we all thought before we saw it, and I think all four of us would think Absolutely. the same, this is just going to be I was like, rubbish. this is going to be terrible, yes, yeah. I'm yeah. going to hate it. Yeah. And, yeah. and everybody's coming away loving it, in and fact, probably everybody put yeah, it in I'm, I'm really happy. Yeah. I mean, you and Neil liked it as well, right? Yeah, I, did, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I deliberately didn't go to it. I thought, mm-hmm. no, I'm not going to. It's a well, trilogy, it's finished. I thought it was just a Disney money grab. I, I had to convince Neil. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's an understandable argument, though, because I thought that for a long time. Yeah, that yeah. was just a cash grab. 
I feel like obviously I'm not a parent, but as parents, did you guys like, that was the f- bit. feel something oh, towards yeah. it that oh, like yeah. maybe yeah? Because I I kind of got that vibe from it, but obviously I don't have children, so I was the, I was interested. For me, the ending was Woody sees Buzz and Jesse having a family of their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now what do you do? And that's us as adults. Yeah. The kids leave home. What do you do? Yeah. Well, we do a podcast. <laughs> I mean, maybe Woody should have considered yeah. that instead of all the danger. <laughs> it gave me a great idea. I must get my son a Buzz Lightyear for Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great idea. Well done. Well done, Joel. You'll enjoy that. Um, the summer season itself, I think Toy Story 4 was definitely the highlight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are you looking forward to for the rest of this year? Three films I'm really looking forward to: Wacken Phoenix and Joker, yep. and then Joker, and then Joker. Probably <laughs> in, in, in that order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the one that I'm really, really very excited about. Do you know what? I can't think of any. Well, I am really looking forward to Cats the Musical. Are you joking? No, I think Cats the Musical. It looks terrible. I think Cats the Musical is going to be great. It's going to be great. It's going to be better and bigger than Star Wars. Stop! Stop! (laughs) Um, I'm also looking forward to it, Chapter Two. Yeah, I think Chapter One, and you guys are going to have to catch it to appreciate this. Bill Hader, they say, is amazing in it. Uh, Also looking forward to Doctor Sleep. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've read the book. It's very, very good. I might have to actually go and watch that one because I've seen The Shining, so I might have to go and see yeah. that one. Are you coming mm. with me to watch that, yeah? No, <laughs> I would never go to a horror film with you because you'd have, like, all trick hands and all sorts of weird <laughs> stuff. I, would, I promise not to you touch would... your leg. <laughs> I think I can probably cheat for this section because I've got news for the rest of the year, haven't I? Okay, yeah. So, obviously, I've been accepted at the London Film Festival. And we're looking forward to your reports. So, oh, gosh, I, yes. I don't know what's going to be there. I know I, I'm looking forward to Joker and I'm looking forward to The Irishman, which is more Martin Scorsese's recent film, which will be there. And that's about it. I mean, I'm, I'm in October, I'll be at that festival, so we'll see. Um, so, you get to see The Irishman... It on the big screen before we see it. I on do, and I mean, I'm going to be queuing Netflix. there from like early in the morning because I want to get there early. So, but um, we might have a chance which because is a shame. it may well be in the Bath Film Festival. Mm-hmm. We can nip in down November. to that one in yes. October, November. Yeah. So I think a lot of mine I will bring to the podcast. I just don't know what they are yet. <laughs> so we'll find out. And for me, I, you're right. The uh, Irishman, mm-hmm. definitely yeah. Joker, and I know Star Wars. Yeah, Star Wars. Yes, definitely. I do like Star Wars. Sorry, Jeff. Okay, I it, it goes against your uh, whatever. I mean, I, I agree. I'm looking forward to both Joker and the new Star Wars. I mean, we'll, yeah. we'll see what they bring because they're risky films. Joker but, could but be. We'll, see. Awesome. well, the Joker might be risky. I don't. Th- I think Star I mean, Wars. I- Look, who's directed Star Wars? Abrams, right? Mm-hmm. How bland a director can you get? Have you not seen Super 8? It's fantastic. Super 8 is good. Exactly. And it's his most original film. Yes. But even that is a pastiche of what Spielberg was doing in the 80s. Oh, no. yes. It is. Oh, really? Sorry. I Goonies? liked it. E.T.? Sorry. I liked it, though. It's, good, it's very but... much Spielberg. And also what J.J. Um, Abrahams was doing when he was young. Abrahams. And he's like this on TV. 
He starts off great ideas and he just doesn't know where to take them. Fringe and lost. Mm. There we go. Oh, yeah. Well, lost, definitely. I mean, lost goes off on a tangent. I'll give you that. The problem with lost was that the answer to the lost question was they were in purgatory. <laughs> but because that had already been done on okay. life on Mars, they couldn't do the same thing again. Was that mm. the character in purgatory or the viewer? That's for quite witty for you, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well done. You Give them condescending a bastards. Yeah. Do, you want, do you want some more wine and some crayons? I will have some more yeah. wine in the I'll moment. have some more wine, yes, I agree. Yeah, I think. Um, well, I think we've covered it all here. We've, we've had a crash course run through what the year's been so far, and we've looked at what we're all looking forward to seeing. Mm-hmm. We're all envious of Lucy and oh, the LFF. You. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Just say the word and I'll bring it on the podcast. I mean, I'm oh, happy no, to do so. We, yeah, yeah, we're definitely going to be talking to you we're about that. We're going to pester you to death. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, we want, In, you're our inside woman. I this, am. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. On that note, yeah. and more on this to come, thank you for listening. Lucy, thank you very much for your time. Thank and for you very much. Travelling all this way. It's to, been fun. To rub it in that you're going to be there and we're not. <laughs> yeah. And we will speak to you next time. Thank you very much. Thanks Cheers. Cheers. Thank Bye. Bye. Interesting comments on the year there. What do you, the listeners, think? We'd be very interested to hear your thoughts. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. Okay, guys. Time to watch some movies for the end-of-month reviews, so it only remains for us to say... Do you remember any of that conversation with Lucy, Jeff? Sort of, Neil. I I remember opening the last bottle of wine and saying, i got to drink this before the Eskimos get it. (laughs) (laughs) Inuits. Inuits. And to everyone else, thanks Thanks for for listening listening and and goodbye. goodbye. That's a wrap. Thank you. Make sure you never miss an episode of At The Flicks. Please subscribe to our podcast on our website at theflicks.uk. And if possible, we would really appreciate it if you would rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear your feedback about our podcast and you can contact us on Twitter and by email. Our contact details are also on our website at theflicks.uk. Once again, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.